morning. My name is Scott, one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to the Japanese Hall. Uh, whether this is your first or 40th or 400th time here, you're certainly welcome. And if you come with a heavy heart or a light heart, uh, with joy, sorrow, however you come, uh, you are welcome here. And it's good to see you, good to be with you this morning. I want to jump right in and uh, introduce you, if you don't already know him, to a guy named Guy Raz. Guy Raz, if he's not familiar to you, he is a uh, journalist, podcaster, leader, um, just a gem of a human being. And he started the podcast uh, by NPR called How I Built This. Anyone seen that or listened to it? I guess you don't see podcasts. You listen to them. Yeah, it's just a beautiful podcast. And, and Roz dives into uh, some stories behind some of the world's greatest companies. Uh, things from Instagram, uh, Airbnb, Patagonia, WeWork, Five Guys Burgers, Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, Lululemon. He interviews our uh, Vancouver's very own Chip Wilson. Uh, Dyson and the story of how James Dyson redesigned the vacuum. It's just a beautiful podcast and it never gets old. The podcast, it's the same kind of formula in interviewing this person who started this world-renowned company that's had major, major influence in our world. And how did it happen? How did they get there? How did they create what we now know as Five Guys Burger or whatever it is? And uh, there's this common denominator in each story and that there's almost without fail, there's a period where uh, the original idea is tested or challenged and there's this huge valley moment where the founder or the creator or whatever it is, the CEO says, this might not work. No one's ever done this before or the money's just not here. People are doubting us and then there's a breakthrough, something that sustains a glimmer of hope, some encouraging words, something usually just totally small and maybe seemingly insignificant, but it gives them that hope to move on. Guy Raz says about the podcast, at the deepest level, how I built this is about who these successful entrepreneurs were when they were lying on the bathroom floor crying about a failure or crisis because that's relatable for all of us. And so the passage we're looking at this morning is a bit of a bathroom floor moment in the life of the early church. Acts 8, 1 to 13. If you could follow along in your chair Bibles, or if you brought your Bible or a Bible app, it's on page 764. This is kind of one of the moments in the church where it should have failed. It shouldn't have worked. It should have fallen apart. And why didn't it? Also, before we read the passage together, I want you to pay attention to some from to movements happening here. Uh, if you'll recall, in January, we went through a short mini-series uh, from a pastor, he who shall not be named. No, I'm joking, that's not a thing. We can say his name, Lance. Lance, if you're listening to the podcast, we love you. Come back. 
But in, in, his, uh, in his sermon, he, t- he talked about the simple, central invitation of Jesus, which is, follow me. And the invitation is always this movement from something to something. And there's a lot of from-tos in this passage. So I'm going to do something that's a little unorthodox, but just to look at the whole passage. I know you can't read the words or see them all, but this is the passage that we're about to look at. And instead of looking at the words, I want you to look at some themes that are happening here. So in red is where there are bits of persecution happening. Uh, In yellow are places where preaching or proclaiming of the gospel, the good news, the word, is happening. In orange is miracles and signs, God's magnificent power on display. And then baptisms in blue. Interesting just to see that flow. And it's hard to make out the red and orange. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, but... It's there. And there's a lot of movements, like I said. Maybe you can pick some out as we read it today, but there's this movement from death to life, a movement from mourning to joy, from opposition to favor, from destruction to miracles. So let's let's take a look at this. Again, if you're in your chair Bible, uh, it's page 764 or on your own Bible. Uh, Let's read Acts 8, 1, and just the first part there. And Saul approved of their killing him. I think we have to pause here, especially if you are a newcomer or you're just joining us. We've been in a series, and this is perhaps perhaps a moment to say we're mid-narrative. So when we do all these preaching series and we follow a pattern, and we're doing different parts of the, the passage. It's good to remember we're part of a bigger narrative here. Uh, so we find ourselves in this moment. Saul gives per- permission for the execution of Stephen. Saul, who later becomes Paul, who later writes most of the New Testament. Uh, and his conversion we'll read about next chapter, a bit of a teaser. But we're jumping in mid-story here, and uh, just a quick catch-up. Acts 1 begins with Jesus with his followers. Jesus then leaves his followers and promises a spirit. The spirit comes, not just comes, but in a big way, if you remember. Acts 2, the church then grows. Their baptism, miracles, sharing and caring. The church grows more. Structural changes are made to accommodate the growth The early church's strategy is to appoint leaders to oversee food distribution and care for people while the apostles commit to prayer and preaching God's word. Seven were chosen. One of those people was Stephen. Stephen is confronted by the religious leaders who were threatened by what he represented and the change that he was advocating for. So spicy Stephen pushes back. He retells the story. Nelson uh, laid that out for us last week. The story from Moses... Uh, And Abraham to Jesus, they don't like it. They kill him with rocks. Stephen's last words are a prayer asking Jesus to forgive those people killing him. And this is where we pick up. Stephen is dead. And we see the man behind the execution, Saul. Continue reading. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria Godly men buried Stephen and mourned 
deeply for him. I think it's important to note this isn't just a group of men being sad about their friend that died, but this was a bit of a protest. It was forbidden by Jewish law because Stephen was considered an executed criminal. It was forbidden to mourn the death of a criminal. So these people were mourning in protest. Interesting to note. Let's continue in verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church. Some translations say ravage the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip, who was, if you remember in the past passage, was one of the seven, chosen with Stephen, Philip goes down to a city in Samaria, end of verse 5, and proclaimed the Messiah there. Verse 6, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some, uh, sometime a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. That was Simon's nickname, this person they're talking about, the great power of God. Imagine that being your nickname. Uh, my name's Simon, but you can call me the great power of God. Verse 11 they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. This is the word of the Lord. So back to this view of the whole passage. You can see this happening as we read it, the persecution, the preaching of the word, miracles and baptism. And uh, I just have some questions. And as I began to reflect on this passage, I, it, it just didn't seem to add up to me. How, how on earth did the early followers keep their faith in the midst of such intense opposition? What was it that held them together when everything was falling apart around them? How did they get off the bathroom floor? What was their motivation? Was it easy? Did they doubt? Did they want to give up? Because it shouldn't have worked. When you look at this, the killing, the persecution, the imprisonment, the destruction, it shouldn't have gone forward. It shouldn't have been a success. We shouldn't be here today. Saul's and the religious leaders, the authorities, their intent was to shut this down. But their plan backfired, and it only seemed, seemed to stoke the flame. So I want to do a bit of Guy Raz uh, journalism here and uncover a few things from the story. Uh, and some questions that I have, they might not be your questions, but add your questions to the list. My questions, what were the effects of persecution on the early church, and what ultimately sustained them. 
What were the effects of persecution on the early church and what ultimately sustained them? Let's first look at the effects of persecution. First, interesting to note, this first mention of persecution is the first time the word is used as a noun. Uh, Before it had been used as a verb, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Earlier in Acts, used as a verb, this is maybe a bit more significant, a movement, something of substance, persecution as a noun. I think that's significant. And like I said, it meant to, it was meant to be a setback, but only seemed to speed up the mission. Remember this part in Acts chapter 1? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said these words to the followers. And they're maybe remembering these words now in this moment, this bathroom floor moment, wondering how... What? How are we to move on? If you look at this map, you'll see the movement of the gospel. And in chapter 2 to chapter 7, it's about Jerusalem. And this is how Luke, the author of Acts, lays out the narrative. So it happens here in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 8 to 12, it moves to Judea and Samaria. gets a little bit bigger. So we're right at the cusp of that shift from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Chapter 8 is where it shifts. And then the ends of the earth. Um, Yeah, this just took me a really long time to make. So so let's go back. Yeah, yeah. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Try it one more time. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Thank you. Thanks, Spencer. Couldn't have done it without you. Rodney Stark is a sociologist, and he writes about this rapid growth in the first four centuries. He writes it in in his book, The Rise of Christianity. And he traces the growth, starting from 12 to 1,000 members in 40 AD, grew at a rate of 40% per decade. If you're an entrepreneur or startup owner, that's pretty good growth, hey? 33 million people who claimed to be Christian in 350 A.D., over half of the Roman Empire was Christian. Crazy. It shouldn't have happened. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Rodney Stark argues that a big part of why Christianity grew so quickly was because it provided a better version, or a better vision, rather, for humanity. And quoting him, it's a long one, but a good one. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Amazing. That is a better vision. 
And not only did the persecution seem to speed up growth or the mission of the church, but it seemed to make the church better. <laughs> and, it, and it puzzles me. How did something so awful make something so good? It seemed to make them stronger. It seemed to make them more resilient. It galvanized them. It purified them. And I often wonder, what would happen if we experienced this kind of persecution? What would happen to us today? Even just look at Artisan Church. What would happen if we experienced this kind of violent opposition? Would we make it? Would we respond in the way the early church did? Or are we too soft and sedated and distracted? Um, according to this cheerful-looking guy, he doesn't think we cut it. During an interview with Esquire, Clint Eastwood presented his views of young people today. He said, that's the kiss-ass generation we're in right now. We're really in a weak generation. Everybody's walking on eggshells. Donald Trump has said a lot of dumb things. So have all them, both sides. But everyone, the press, and everybody's going, oh, well, that's racist. And they're making a big hoodoo out of it. Just effing get over it. It's a sad time in history. All right. Thank you, Clint. I tend to hold a more optimistic view of humanity, but that's just me. And uh, as proof, I want to tell a little story. And that is, uh, well, uh, if you know me, you know that I'm the pastor that doesn't like coffee. And a while ago, I, I chose, uh, because I was meeting so many people for coffee, I said, I can't sustain a life of hot chocolate and whipped cream <laughs> or frappuccinos. So I started eating, I started drinking tea, and I began to love tea. And I began to love the experience of going to get my tea. And in fact, I had this conversation with my wife about budget and like how we're going to spend our money. And I realized I actually value and want to pay to go get my tea because I love the experience. I love going into the shop. I just go to the closest one to our offices up in, in uh, Mount Pleasant there. It's a Starbucks. It's nothing special, but they make a great English breakfast tea. And, uh, and I go there. And I sit in the coffee shop, I talk to the baristas, and I usually sit, usually run into Robin Kadamia, who's not here right now, <laughs> and Lorelai, and, uh, and run into people, and I overhear conversations. The other week, I was listening to a group of guys that meets there pretty much daily, and they were talking about how to adjust the privacy settings on their Facebook pages, and uh, so that was interesting. And... Uh, and then the other day, something I overheard was really interesting. Um, and it just kind of it kind of uh, piqued my interest when I heard the one woman say, I just love talking to people. And then the, ma the man that was with them, there was a group of, I think, five or six. The man's like, how do you start those conversations? And I, I missed parts of the conversation, but they were talking about how to talk to strangers, basically. Uh, and she's like, S uh, something else happened. Then she said, stories are really important. We need to be sharing our stories together and really adamant. And I realized this is some, a meeting of some sort. I don't know what's happening here, but I'm trying to piece it together. And, and, then, and then she said, I might be sharing a story, and you might have an aha moment. And then the man said, yes, and then the penny will drop. 
Yes, yes, continues. And then the, the, the group was like, yes, we agree. Stories are what bring us together and let us know that we're not alone. I'm sitting here listening to this. It was like too good to be true. I was like, did Nelson plan this? <laughs> did he call these people to have this conversation next to me? He knew I was preaching this sermon. And then they start to just basically tee up this sermon. She said, the woman said, and I'm just like, I could have reached out and touched their shoulder. It was a packed morning. Uh, a lot of times we feel fearful. And when we say it out loud, another person might say, me too. And the woman <laughs> continued to tell a story. I fractured my wrist and was going to cancel my Tai Chi class. But my instructor said, come anyway and try it out. She said, even with my cast? And the instructor said, yes. Then I realized, and this is just so beautiful, then I realized that those with challenges are the kindest. She said, I was seeing all sorts of things I never noticed before. I noticed how creative I could be in that Tai Chi class as I adapted having a broken wrist to having a broken wrist. I noticed how the challenges made me a stronger and kinder person. And I'm just sitting there like almost crying. <laughs> and I wanted to turn next to him, but I didn't. I left and was just so encouraged that these conversations were happening. And I was like, in your face, Glenn Eastwood. People are great. And there's a simple, beautiful truth to this, that experiencing difficulty in life can make us stronger and kinder people. This was certainly true for the early church, that it made them stronger and kinder people. But I still have the question of why. Why did it work? How did they, how, what sustained them? Again, back to the slide. What sustained them through the persecution, the bathroom floor? How did they move to becoming a thriving community? What motivated them? And I think the answer can be found right in the middle of this passage. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, I could hear Guy Raz interviewing these people saying, like, that's a bit of an odd response. Like, you were scattered and persecuted, and your response was to preach the word wherever you went. First of all, what does it mean to preach the word, and why would you do that instead of hiding or moving away or cowering or seeking, I don't know, seeking peace somewhere else? Instead, the impulse was to go out, to move out, to share some good news that they had. And the word for preach is this word, euangelizo, I'm probably saying it wrong, but it's where we get our word for evangelism, preach or share. And the word used for word is logos in Greek. So the phrase is euangelizio minoi ton logon, which directly translated means preach or share the word. Now you might recognize this word for word, logos, or logon here, also from John 1, and John's choice of word to describe Jesus. And the Gospel of John starts here, an account 
a biography of Jesus' life. And John uses this word to describe Jesus, and he says, and he writes, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I think more than persecution, I think what sustained the early church and what needs to sustain us is simply this, encountering the real and living God who is with us and for us, the word of the Lord. We say it, and I'm not just talking about this word of the Lord, although it certainly is not less than this, the bound written word of the Lord, but the word of the Lord. Have you experienced this before? Have you experienced a time where you've thought, this could be the word of the Lord through a song or through someone's word, a friend's uh, encouragement to you through a sermon? In Acts 2, before this, it says that the earlier followers, when they heard the word of the Lord, they were cut to the heart. Something happened. It pierced. And this is what the word of the Lord does. It pierces. It convicts. It reveals truth. It exposes or provokes, moves us to action. When you have, if you have experienced this, what did it do inside of you? How did it impact you when you heard the word of the Lord? Like I said, it can happen many different ways. I remember a time in my 20s when the word of the Lord came to me in a song. And the song had this repeating chorus, and it just said, Come, pour out on me. Come, pour out on me. And I remember I was in Australia at the time at Bible college. I was in a house with no central heating. I could see my breath in winter. And I, I just would weep as I'd hear the song and these words come over me, pour out on me. I remember lifting my hands out of my warm blanket and just falling asleep with my hands raised because the word of the Lord was coming to me through this song. The Spirit of God was pouring out on me, Scott. It wasn't happening for my roommate next door. It was just right then, right there for me through this song. And it was probably the better part of that year that I listened to that song over and over again. Recently, the word of the Lord came to me through Psalm 23. I must have heard that psalm a thousand or more times growing up. I grew up in the church. I grew up reading the Bible. I grew up hearing Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And for some reason, on the weekend of my 40th birthday, I, it just sparked in me. It was like, the whoa, the Lord is my shepherd? And it, for some reason, it didn't hit. It didn't land as it had in the past. But then at that moment, the Lord is my shepherd. And again, an emotional response. It was tears. It was uh, an openness, a warmness. Maybe you don't receive the word of the Lord the same way, but do you remember a time when you have? If not, I pray that you will, and I believe that you can. 
And this is what sustained the early church. This is what will sustain us. Um, as many of you know, we're going through a transition. Our lead pastor has, has moved on, has stepped down. And uh, in this process, we've been consulting some people who have been part of church transitions and know, have some wisdom around this. One guy in particular, his name is Jerry Tykrob, who I hope you'll get to meet. Um, but he, he said that this is an opportunity for artisan uh, to discover what the glue is that holds, holds this church together, or rather what, people, what holds people to this church community. And he said it's an opportunity for spiritual formation. Like, oh, I like that much better than being fearful or scared or worrying, but looking at it as an opportunity for growth and to be formed spiritually, that sounds awesome. But also, as I was reflecting on it and reflecting on the word of the Lord, I think this is why the loss of Lance feels so deep to us, because that was a big part of his role in this community, was speaking the word of the Lord. And how many of you sat in a sermon from Lance and felt that cutting to your heart, or you felt some kind of emotional response to what was being said? I certainly had. And he was one of the clearest voices in speaking the word of the Lord to me. So it's not just the loss of a lead pastor or a buddy who goes for coffee with you and actually drinks coffee, but a prophetic mouthpiece in our community. And, and then I started to get excited reading this passage and seeing this time pre-artisan, pre-lance, and getting outside and seeing a bigger perspective and realizing there's so much good news for us, artisan church, that the word of the Lord is not finished with us, that we are all carriers of the Spirit, therefore carriers of the word of the Lord. And sermons are not the only way we hear or receive the word of the Lord. I want to show you a way that the word of the Lord is actively being sought out for our community, and we, you had no idea. There is a ministry called 24-7 Prayer, and as you can tell by the name, they like to pray a lot. And so this box lives in the downtown east side, not too far from here. And there's a space here that is designated for prayer. And you are all, all welcome to go there and sign up for a personal prayer slot to pray for the neighborhood, to pray for the churches of the neighborhood. And this box was made for our church. And I didn't even know till last week. Artisan Church, I don't know if you can read it very well. Uh, on the far right, uh, number three, with spiritual growth and joyful engagement with Scripture for the congregation as they practice the way of Jesus in 2020. Um, the middle box, wisdom and unity for the lead team in managing the transition as the, our lead pastor steps down. Grace and discernment for Lance Odegaard as he moves from his pastoral role to a new calling. And then someone wrote, and the idea is you put prayers inside the box, and they gave the prayers to me and said, we've been praying for Artisan. This is so awesome. The tree drawing that you see there, praying that you will see how to fit into the ecosystem of communities in the downtown east side. Because you do, exclamation, blessings for support and deep connection. Here's a prayer for Artisan Church. May the spirit of Jesus 
uh, bring guidance, encouragement, presence, be palpable and sustaining. Uh, prayer for radical unity, radical love, resources from above, in Jesus' name. Uh, blessed with sensitivity to bring people in, everyone being brought into the center with Christ, no one left out. Artisan, you're tucked in safe, uh, you're tucked in safe in my cover. The strength of my arm shields you. Beautiful. I, I think that's the way that people are seeking the word of the Lord for our community. And uh, this morning, that's all I have to say. This sermon's over. But I want to come to the table, and I, I, the big challenge for me to you this morning, to myself as, as well, is are you open and will you be open to hearing the word of the Lord? And it could come to you this morning. It could come to you when you least expect it. It could come to you as you seek the word of the Lord. And so as we come to the table, let's remind ourselves what is the gospel, the good news, the word, and let's draw strength from it, whatever situation we find ourselves in. Whether we're in a storm right now or whether we're on dry land, and to remember that Jesus didn't send the storm, but he also didn't spare us from it. He stands with us in the midst of it. So take courage. Jesus is here. Do not be afraid. And I want to end with these words from Anne Lamott, because just always got to find a way to fit in an Anne Lamott quote. In the rabbinical tradition, there's a great insight in the notion that when we see suffering, we remember that this is only the sixth day. We're not done here. The good news is that God isn't either. God is searching with us for a cure for cancer. God rejoiced at the cure for smallpox. Friends, this is the gospel. It's the good news.